Welcome to another episode of Axe of Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me, well, welcoming her back, I suppose, is Nadia Oxford, my lovely co-host. Hi, good to be back, and uh, thank you for to Mike for filling in with his smooth, jazzy voice. He does have a smooth, jazzy voice, doesn't he? Yeah, it's like I told him, I'm surprised people aren't clamoring on Twitter for him to replace me, because he just has that really pleasant sort of manner about him. <laughs> yeah, he he does bring a nice uh, kind of relaxed and chill vibe to the podcast and to our staff meetings in general, right? He does. <laughs> he really keeps things calm. He's a, he's very much a good asset in that regard. Well, we got a lot to talk about on this podcast. We're going to be kind of talking a little bit about the anniversary of Final Fantasy VIII. We're going to talk about all of the news that happened, including Final Fantasy IX being out on the Switch um, and various other things. We're going to be continuing on with our Top 25 RPG Countdown with special guest Rowan Kaiser. Before that, uh, as usual, there are many ways to connect to Acts of the Blood God. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, for example which you can find out how to do over on the site. We also periodically tweet out uh, links to the subscription service on our social media, which is at USGamerNet. I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review saying that you like it because the nicer reviews we get, the more exposure we get on places like iTunes. Okay. It's been a busy week, Nadia, uh, both mm. the good and the bad. Uh, start with the bad massive layoffs at activision blizzard blizzard of course being you know they're they're, they've traditionally been a strategy developer but they have one big foot in the uh, rpg space with world of warcraft and uh i gotta say nadia i think that i'm a little worried about the future of blizzard these days i i'm a little mad about the future of blizzard these days because of what Mm. happened um I feel like, okay, I don't understand a lot in the way in, in regards to, uh, like, you know, stock prices and investors and what they want and what they see. Uh, but just the whole record profits plus 800 layoffs does not sit well with me. And I totally, totally forgot that Blizzard, Act- Activision Blizzard bought King. <laughs> like, oh, holy crap, that was a huge purchase and I completely forgot about it. Yeah, I mean, Candy Crush, it's amazing that it's still going, right? <laughs> I mean, you would think that it people is. would get sick of a probably the worst game ever made but they do love that dopamine rush of figuring out a match three game that's completely arbitrary well i'll be honest with you i like match three games quite a bit i like them more than tetris i don't play candy crush but i, I do. like match three i didn't say match three is bad i said candy crush is bad oh okay that i can agree with uh yeah it's definitely one of those games where i got to a certain point and I said you know what i'm getting ripped off and i i just mm-hmm. stopped no it's it's a complete ripoff it's one of the yeah. biggest ripoffs ever and really just open the doors, open the floodgates to a, a ton of awful practices in the industry. I I begrudge it everything. I think it's the worst game <laughs> ever made. It sure looks delicious, though. I think that we should, if I could remove one game from history, it'd be that one. Ooh, that's a, that's, we should really do a podcast someday. That one game we can remove from history. Just, you've already you made your choice. Just but. get rid of it. We don't need Candy Crush. Though I feel bad for the people who did get laid off uh, from King. I mean, they were just doing yes. their jobs, ultimately. And I completely agree with you. It is pretty disgusting to see a company, uh, well, Bobby Kotick, come out and say in his investor call, well, this has been an amazing, another record profits for Activision Blizzard, by the way, we're restructuring and 800 people are losing their jobs. Cuts are running deep. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, they let the they let employees hang for a long time. This had been rumors for quite a while. Yeah. yeah, it's not great. And also, I mean, just the fact that 
I believe it was their CTO or their CFO uh, came in with a gigantic bonus. And then you mm. compare, a lot of people were comparing it to Nintendo when they were having some trouble with the uh, the, de- the downturn of the Wii um, and the Wii U. Yes. And Satoru Iwata took a pay cut. <laughs> yes, he did. And um, people have pointed out that it's not so much the fact that he took the pay cut, even though I- Iwata is a very sweet guy. It's just a, a matter of how different the... the uh, the cultures are between America and Japan in that um, and Iwata said, well, if I lay people off, that's going to really demoralize them. And for all I know, the next person I lay off could be the, the person who comes up with this great new idea for a great new game. And uh, that is a reason why people miss Iwata a whole hell of a lot and nobody will miss Bobby Kotick. But it's also just good business, right? I mean, it really if is. you are making arbitrary cuts and just letting people go... You, uh, I mean, people remember that, right? And oh, of course. The best and the brightest, games. the best and the brightest, aren't going to want to come to your company, or they're not, not going to, uh, or they'll demand much more money <laughs> from yeah. you to do that. So, it's a reputational thing. It really is. It's it's just not a smart move, and it's I guess is another reason why we don't see people grow old in this industry. They just kind of fade away after they turn thirty. Well, I would like to think that that's changing a little bit because I, I think hope so. the dynamics of the industry is changing, but there's no denying that no matter where you are in the industry, it is a tremendous grind, especially if you're working for a big AAA place like Activision Blizzard. And traditionally, Blizzard has been a place where people stay around for a long time. Yes. If yes, you ever go to Blizzard, If you ever go to Blizzard, one of the cool things that they do is once you've been there for a decade, they give you a sword. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's pretty rad. And then you can mount it and everything and you get... Uh, and you can keep adding to it the longer you are. And a lot of people had swords at Blizzard. Aww. Yeah. Aww. That's that's so sad. Freaking yeah, hell. So, but so it was a culture of you wanted to stay at Blizzard. Of course. Yeah. And I remember when uh, Blizzard also gave out those. Uh, they have that big uh, orc riding, uh, wolf riding statue outside of their offices. And they gave, uh, they gave those out one yeah. Christmas. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, so I just feel, I look at what's happening to Blizzard, and I feel like Activision Blizzard's just trying to turn them into another Treyarch, you know? Yeah. They're trying to take a, strip away whatever made Blizzard special once upon a time. And uh, frankly, with people like uh, Mike Morhaime, uh one of the founders, leaving, uh, you got to feel like Blizzard is in for some changes, and they're going to be forced to put out more games to satisfy Activision's bottom line and the quality is going to decline yeah i I think you're right i'm a little worried too uh, thinking about the whole misstep with the diablo mobile uh not so much the fact that the game exists of course just the fact how they introduced it and how they reacted to the bad reaction yeah so moving on to slightly better news it doesn't uh fix the fact that what happened at activision blizzard was kind of a travesty but uh, nintendo direct came uh everybody's very excited about uh link's awakening getting a remake uh which is very cool or like an update i suppose uh i i will certainly be playing it i was a little sad that it's not going to be a link between worlds but i mean you can't have everything right no you really can't and uh, i guess we'll address that but i did write an article about that very topic that's up on us gamer right now yeah you should go check it out but in the meantime there was a couple of rpg related headlines in the nintendo direct one of them is final fantasy 9 now officially on available on the nintendo switch and unfortunately it has a bug (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Good old Square Enix with their uh, champions of game preservation again. Uh, yeah, this is an article that's also up on our site. Uh, Jason Schreier, 
uh, initially is the one who posted it, discovered it and posted it, so all credit to him. Uh, but it's not much of a secret because what the problem is, is like ex- native to pretty much every Square Enix port out there in that um, if you get into a random battle and you're on the, the, you know, the field, the overworld, uh, once the battle is done, the overworld music resets. So it's not the worst bug to ever exist, but as we all know, Square Enix has some of the best overworld themes ever composed, and having to hear them reset over and over and over again, not, never really getting to the second half of that, that tune, because of course random encounters happen every, you know, 10 to 12 seconds, it is really, really a bummer. And Final Fantasy IX has, I think, maybe one of the best op- uh, open world themes out of the PlayStation games. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, As we know, I played uh, Final Fantasy IX for the first time uh, a couple of years ago. We did a whole Final Fantasy IX report on that. Go check it out. Uh, but yeah, I would. I was listening to it today. It's just a very... Melodies of Life in general is a very calm, nice song. I like it very much. Yeah. Speaking of which, Nadia wrote a five-part uh, Axe to the Blood God Final Fantasy IX report over on the site. I linked it on Twitter, but I'll put it in the show notes as well. You should go check it out. It's uh, some nice reading, writing. Um, and of course, we had the podcasts as well, in which <laughs> we went step-by-step step through Final Fantasy IX. Uh, our conclusion was kind of that has a real, it has a lot to recommend it, for sure. Uh, it has it a lot of wonderful flourishes, great callbacks. Uh, to the original games, some very memorable characters. It's one of the best written Final Fantasy games. It is, for it really sure. is. Um, uh, but its attempts to kind of push the the engine beyond of what it was originally designed for, kind of yeah. kind of telling. <laughs> and yeah, it's slow. And oh my gosh, it's a very very slow game, and that's something I address in my um, my write up, saying I don't think I would have enjoyed it quite as much as I did if not for the fact that you can fast forward through battles. But even that being the case, uh, it's just, I feel like in every battle, I was always a step behind. You know what I mean? Just, uh, I feel like four characters on the screen, which is way too much for that poor little engine to handle. Staying on the Final Fantasy tip, it was the 20th anniversary of Final Fantasy VIII. Oh, boy, it sure was. I wrote an article, uh, a very controversial article, and I said simply, Final Fantasy VIII is good. <laughs> it is good, <laughs> yes. people. A lot I of people come to you to. now and say that Final Fantasy VIII is good. I have the Blood God has decided. Has has the Blood God decided now? Yes, it, and it was always good. It was good <laughs> from the start. Sorry, Re- it's not revisionist history. Final Fantasy VIII was always good. I actually got into an argument about this with my housemate. <laughs> he was very <laughs> vehemently. He was like, "No, <laughs> not that one." It ended up going up a day after the anniversary. Which is annoying to me because I started it like the Friday before, um, and I I went through like three or four different drafts on that thing, yeah, and by think... the end of Monday, the end of that Monday, the day of the anniversary when it was supposed to have gone up, I was despairing because I was like, I I can't write this article. <laughs> oh, I've been there. Yeah, I think you told me it's out of control. The article had grown out of control. It totally grew out of control, and I was telling the person I was arguing with, I was like, maybe this is a sign. Maybe I was not meant to write this article. <laughs> Maybe like but, writing this article is like opening the Ark of the Covenant and we'll all have our it. skin melted off as soon as we read it. <laughs> all our faces melt. But and around 9 p.m. on Monday, I finally got, I basically just scrapped it and started over mm. and finally found the opening that I was looking for. And finally, yeah. the article came together. 
So anyway, you should go read it. It's kind of a breakdown that traces both the the history of Final Fantasy VIII and talks about things like the the really amazing cutscene work, uh, Laguna, and how he's kind of a dork and but oh, also awesome. Uh, Squall and uh, the whole thing going on with him. And Whatever's. I talked to at some length about the battle system and ultimately came to the conclusion that it was a daring and experimental RPG it coming, it, which was made doubly more impressive by the fact that it was coming off one of the most successful game and popular games ever. Mm-hmm. They had a formula that they could have just done again, but prettier. That's true. And they didn't. So true. good for them. And not they only just scrap it and start over again. And not only that, Nadia, I feel like one thing that I realized as I was writing that article is they just don't make games like Final Fantasy VIII anymore. Square Enix doesn't. Like really experimental ones? No. Though to an extent, more like... So Final Fantasy VIII had this... It was experimental, but it had a certain bedrock to it, which mm-hmm. was that it was grounded in this really interesting world full of secrets and things to do that you wanted to go out and explore, right? And there's all kinds of crazy things to find in the world of Final Fantasy VIII. Like, there's a little UFO going by. What the heck's up with that UFO? <laughs> Did we ever find out? I got mad at Final Fantasy VIII because, like, I wanted to explore, and it kept deterring me. I, I remember I, I had a car, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is Final Fantasy, I got a car or whatever, I can roll with it. And then, like, I'm just kind of driving around, and, and my salary started going down. I'm like, what in God's name? Why am I earning a salary for th- this broken-ass fucking game? Goodbye. I am done. I am buying Suikoden 2. And that was the best <laughs> decision I ever made in my life. Well, there's a reason Final Fantasy VIII isn't on this uh, list. and uh, But it's such an interesting game at the same time. and It is interesting. I'll give it that. I, I, they tried a lot of different things, like having a salary. Uh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> having uh, Introducing the junction system and the draw system, trying to do away with MP as we know it, and mm. uh, shifting over to more of a realistic kind of perspective with the characters, uh, going telling a story that at the time was pretty daring because it was a love story. And, I mean, games at that time, much even more so than now, were being marketed to kids and teen boys like mm-hmm. adolescent boys so to be like no this is a love story like that's the main thrust of it is was kind of like oh wow oh okay it, it felt <laughs> it ended up being pretty cheesy in some ways but it was also adult and it went adult in the themes that they were trying to tackle and maybe it was maybe in the end of the day it was kind of ramshackle but i give them credit for the try for trying and then there are other things very real strengths that kind of recommend Final Fantasy VIII. I have a lot of fond memories of playing Final Fantasy VIII, and I think the thing that I liked the most about it, ultimately, was that it kind of demanded mastery of all of its systems. Also, Triple Triad was awesome. And Triple Triad was pretty awesome. And uh, I do think that the the, lo- the particular love story between uh, Laguna and Julia and Rain was, uh, as you say, kind of cheesy, but there's something sweet about it. I still find the ending for Final Fantasy VIII, uh, the ending movie, to be, to be really sweet. Hmm. And then... In- and then also in Final Fantasy VIII, <clears throat> if I compare it, uh, so when I was talking to my housemate, we were talking about where did Final Fantasy kind of go wrong, and he said, well, I think Final Fantasy VIII is where the fan- it kind of started to go wrong, because that is where they started to put more emphasis on cutscenes over 
uh, over gameplay, and maybe that was even the case with Final Fantasy VII. And I don't know if that's the case, actually, because they spend so much time creating interesting systems and things to do in that game. Yeah. If anything, and people aren't going to like this opinion, I think where the series really started to go wrong with Final Fantasy X, uh, and the reason I think that's the case is because, as I said, stultifying linearity. It's the moment where they kind of started to put guardrails up uh, in everything from the way that you utilize the sphere system in a very directed kind of way. It's like, keep moving forward. Yeah, you can start in any place that you want. and Yeah, you have some control of it, but we're putting guardrails up to make sure that you feel okay. And then also things like removing the open world, removing the overworld, which was kind of a bummer, actually, and it never really came back. You're on the airship forever. (laughs) (laughs) It it is interesting how Final Fantasy, I don't know, I feel like it's, it's not really right to say it's ever gone wrong. Like, there's a point where we can point it and say, okay, that's where it all went to hell. I feel like it's really been up and down. It's like, yeah, 10 has those, those criticisms that you've, you've lobbed against it, but then, like, 12 was so excellent, and uh, uh, 15 has its faults, but I really liked it. And it, it's, of course, 14 is, is amazing. So it's, it's hard to really look at Final Fantasy and say, okay, this is where it all went bad. I suppose, but at the same time, like I said, they just don't make games like Final Fantasy seven, eight, nine anymore. No, I guess they, I guess they don't. But who knows what the future will bring? I think I said, what was it? Uh, here's my game pitch: Resident Evil two remake, but Final Fantasy five. Now that's an interesting one. Yeah, just give me freaking Final Fantasy five with Resident Evil two remake graphics. Didn't uh, Square Enix release a, uh, there was a press release they distributed, I forget what game it was for, but they put in screenshots of Final Fantasy V. (laughs) I don't remember. (laughs) It was on Twitter a couple days ago, shortly after Direct. It might have been for a game they announced there. I can't even remember, but it was was pretty funny. It wasn't even like, you know, we're talking about like SNES Final Fantasy V or or GBA Final Fantasy V. We're talking about gross-ass Steam Final Fantasy V. (laughs) Gross-ass Steam Final Fantasy V. We should use that. Uh, we should just use that term for all of the the mobile versions. It's a good descriptor, I think. Gross ass Steam Final Fantasy VI. Yeah, oh, that one breaks my heart. But you ever look at Locke in that, like his sprite in that game? He looks like he has a huge rack. Do, uh, does he? I I he does. haven't ever looked at Locke. Uh, yeah. Take a look next. If you ever like, for some reason, have to look at that game ever again, look at Locke. He's got a huge rack. Okay, deal. Well. <laughs> I'm sure that some of you are going to be like, uh, you just said that you value the experimentation, the spirit of experimentation in Final Fantasy VIII, and now you're just saying that you want Final Fantasy V with Resident Evil 2 remake graphics? Make up your mind, cat. Well, I'm a, I'm a lady who's complicated. Maybe, maybe I want both. I don't see why we can't have both. <laughs> why can't we have both? No, I, I think I can commend Final Fantasy VIII for trying some really cool and interesting ideas within the framework of something that I recognize as maybe Final Fantasy to mm-hmm. a large extent. And at this point, I don't think Final Fantasy is recognizable anymore. You've got the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's how you know it's Final Fantasy. I guess. Final Fantasy fifteen. it's just... Let's be honest. It's an okay open world that's kind of empty that doesn't follow most of the conventions of the series. Yeah, um, although I do like the idea of just kind of pulling into a gas station while playing, like, you know, the Genova song from Final Fantasy VII on my car. That was pretty cool. That was fun. That was fun. It was enjoyable. I It was. I think it was better than a lot of people kind of 
gave it credit for, but when it comes down to it, I kind of want them to go back to where they were, you know? Yeah, and maybe they will. Maybe they, I'd, I'd, maybe they won't. Maybe maybe we'll all die by the time Final Fantasy sixteen gets announced. Who knows? Because, I mean, I was talking about Final Fantasy X and how it kind of taught the wrong lessons to the Square Enix development team. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, what came out of Final Fantasy X was Final Fantasy thirteen, which was just right. freaking corridor shooter, but with turn-based <laughs> combat. Not a good game. It's not. <laughs> I, n- I never played it, to be honest with you. It just seemed like one of those games where I could uh, skip it, uh, mm. other than the soundtrack, which is great, as usual. It had its moments. I liked Saws. <laughs> but it spends, he was like, cool. friggin' half the game putting you in different uh, variants of the party and doesn't let you actually start to customize your party till way more than halfway through the game. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. And the moment where it quote-unquote releases you and gives you some freedom is actually pretty boring. It's just kind of a, almost like a Monster Hunter-like open plane where it's like, oh, uh-huh. okay, not much here. At least in Final <laughs> Fantasy X, you could go around asking people if they want to play Blitzball. That's true. Who want to play Blitzball? Me, me. But, yeah, go check out my article about Final Fantasy VIII and why I think it is good with a capital G. Final Fantasy VIII is good, and someday I'm going to make Nadia play it and make her realize it, too. Uh, you know what? I would give it a good chance if it was on Switch, and it's not. Well, it's, it's not yet. If it, if it, okay, if it comes on Switch, I'll give it a, a good old-fashioned Canadian try. All right. And the last couple things. Uh, we got more information about Fire Emblem Three Houses. Uh, Nadia, did you see the uh, the trailer for it on the Nintendo Direct? I, I mean, you did because you were on social media. Yes. And what did media. you think of what she saw? I thought, oh, this kind of looks like uh, uh, Fire Emblem Harry Potter. I want to be Hufflepuff. No, it's Fire Emblem Pokemon Go. <laughs> It can be both. It's even red, blue, and yellow. That's true. But I, I'm, uh, shoot, I, I don't want to, like, be, like, I don't have to, I don't want to be, like, loyal to uh, Team Valor through every single iteration of, like, the game, the idea. So I'm going to have to break away. Team but, Mystic. Uh, I'm still into Team Valor. Team I Mystic. Think, I, like, I think Kendella's is really cute. Really? I like her. Oh, yeah. I was looking at Fire Emblem, I mean, Three Houses. It looks pretty. <laughs> It does. Yeah, it looks really good. Um, it's hard to tell if it kind of stays to the spirit of Fire Emblem. Uh, they didn't talk about things about like romances and such very much. They have like mm-hmm. this battle academy and you're picking through one of three factions. Uh, I, I'm really, it seems like they're pushing replayability as an idea of like, now pick this faction, now pick this faction. Right. So, see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um I'm definitely looking forward to it. I, I, I was kind of uh, surprised we learned so much about this Battle Academy and not, like, uh, the war going on. Yeah. And uh, we find out a release date. It's going to be out this summer, which seems to me to be the sweet spot for an RPG like this. It does, yes. It seems like the perfect time to put out a game. I mean, we saw how much it did for Octopath Traveler uh, last July, and I think that Fire Emblem Three Houses will benefit equally. Yeah, I do too. Definitely looking forward to it. I like. Uh, I really enjoyed ha- getting to play Octopath Travel in the summertime, and kind of a nice sort of chill time of the year for games. And I, I look forward to doing Fire Emblem the same way. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, I'm still playing Fire Emblem Heroes, and <laughs> so they're in the middle of their second anniversary celebration, 
and they just confirmed that they were going to be giving away four characters based on a fan vote. Oh, boy. And there are three of the characters are extremely strong, uh-huh. and then one of the characters is not good. <laughs> so, why? Just a uh, favorite waifu? Uh, a combination of that, and I think some people were speculating that they didn't realize, the voters didn't realize that they could scroll down. <laughs> So they were just picking from, like, one of the names that they saw at the top of the list. Geniuses. Geniuses, I tell you. Because you could see it in the way that the votes panned out. The, right. The names literally at the top of the list got the most votes, and then it just kind of drained away as it went down. In that's a brilliant. total linear fashion. It was like Google search results. Right. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. So people are pretty salty about that, because... <laughs> The way it goes in Fire Emblem is that you have red, blue, colorless, and green characters. Mm-hmm. And you got a kick-ass red, a kick-ass blue, a kick-ass colorless. And there are a lot of great green characters out there. And people are like, oh, man, we're going to get this character or this character or this character. And if we got this character, maybe we could get this skill from them. This is very exciting. What? They're giving us this character? Come on. <laughs> I got to admit, I'm kind of annoyed. Because there's a character that I've wanted um, from, I think... It's either Genealogy of the Holy War or Thracia. Please don't yell at me for not knowing off the top of my head, but his name is Luin. He's a green mage, and he has a great design to him, and he's extremely powerful. And I spent like 250 orbs trying to get him last time, and no dice, and I was so mad. Ouch. Oof. So, yeah, like it would have been nice to finally get him for free, <laughs> but no dice. So, oh, I'm sorry, cat. So I'm going to get a Halloween dragon instead. Oh, well, that's all right. I mean, it's not Halloween anymore. It hasn't been for a while, but go for it. Yeah, I can still build... I can finally build my dragon team. I do like dragons. Dragons are always a good bet. Really? Yeah. Cool. Not so much in Fire Emblem. I just like dragons, period. A couple more things. Bioware reiterates that it's not done, Nadia, with Mass Effect and hopes to return to the series as soon as possible, i.e. if <laughs> i.e. if Anthem is a success. Yeah, I was going to say, well, we hope you return too, Bioware. We We honestly do. You know, Apex Legends is the first good news for EA in like two years. Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? Yeah, it kind of came out of nowhere. I mean... That and Tetris 99. That was the right... <laughs> Tetris. We're playing a lot of Tetris 99 in my house. I'm not surprised, yeah. But uh, just of all the Battle Royale things to do, Nintendo's like, oh, mechs, uh, you know, people with guns, eh, Tetris. And finally, what makes good video game lore? Describes of Elder Scrolls, Divinity, Original Sin, and more weigh in. This is an article by contributor Stephen Wright in which they, well, he talked to various people, including Michael Kirkbride, uh, Chris Avalon, who's been on this podcast, and basically was going through what makes good lore in games. And one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting is that they talk about how the dreaded lore dump is something that you don't want to do. I.e. paragraphs and paragraphs of text delivered by some dusty historian who might as well be the designer themselves blaring at you with a megaphone. Basically all the quest descriptions you skipped in World of Warcraft. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And yeah, so uh, yeah, go check it out. It has a lot of interesting comments, including uh, one from Michael Kirkbride in which he talked about how he didn't play Oblivion for nine years. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. Go find out oh. why. Mm. Yeah, that's my teaser for you. Okay, we're going to continue on to Rowan, and we're going to talk about Ultima 7 for our Top 25 RPG Countdown, so don't go away. 
All right, continuing on with the top 25 RPG countdown, we are continuing to number six on the list. Oh my god, we're getting so very, very close to being done. And number six on this list is the best Ultima game uh, easily um, ever made. One of the best RPGs ever made, and that is Ultima 7. Avatar! Know that Britannia has entered into a new age of enlightenment. And joining me to talk about Ultima 7 is Rowan Kaiser returning back to the show. Welcome back, Rowan. Hello. And Rowan, I, I know that you're a big Ultima fan. That's why I decided to have you on here. Uh, you just cracked a joke about not doing Ultima 8. Ultima 8 was kind of uh, kind of unfortunate, wasn't it? Yeah, Ultima 8 was an epic disaster. Yeah, because they basically tried to turn it into, what, an action game or something like that? Well, they they sort of tried to do an action game with like some platforming and some more action oriented combat, and the combat worked okay. But the platforming was so bad, they released a patch that basically like froze every moving platform in the game and made it so you just double click on something to jump on it. So they just like hacked out a third of their game because it was so awful. Um, was that was, there were a whole bunch of other things wrong with it? Was that when they that was that after Origin was acquired by EA? Yes. Well, that was actually Ultima 7 was the first Ultima. There are these two villains that you are chasing throughout Ultima 7 named Elizabeth and Abraham with the, the initials of E and A. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the origin people were maybe not entirely happy with how that acquisition turned out. And they may have been demonstrated right by how events unfolded. Yeah, EA has a lot to answer for in the way that they treated <laughs> origin. But I mean, we can talk about that a little later. In the meantime... Ultima 7, generally regarded as the apex of the series, uh, the game that introduced, well, really pioneered open-world RPGs in the way that we know them today, but also, in some ways, hasn't really been matched in much the same way as Fallout, in many ways, hasn't been matched by its successors. Uh, it is a truly remarkable game for when it came out in 1992 and still holds up in many ways. Uh, Rowan... As a big fan of Ultima 7, I'm curious, when was the first time you played Ultima 7? Uh, I probably played it a year or two after release. I think there was a big Ultima 7 complete collection that came out with it and its expansion, and then it's like pseudo-sequel Ultima 7.5 Serpent Isle and its expansion. So I would have played it in 93 or 94, I think. And what were your impressions at that time? Like, What stood out to you about it in 1993 or 4? Um, this game is gorgeous. Like, I still think this game is gorgeous. Uh, it has, it really has this strong art style for its world, and it knows it, and it wants to show you the world in every way that it can. Um, and later, as I became a critic, I realized sort of how it was doing that, but the entire screen is the game. Like, the, it doesn't have, like, menus poking at you from all over. If you look at Ultima 6, which I actually kind of like more in some ways, uh, but just two years before, like, the game world is, like, a quarter of the screen. Like, then in the bottom left, there's, like, you know, the, your actions. And then the bottom right, you have your inventory. And in the top right, you have, like, your face. Um, and then, but if you look at Ultima 7, it's just the entire screen is, you know, the Super VGA world. And you interact with the world via mouse entirely. This is one of the first major mouse-driven games. Um 
and it's like the people at Origin said, we are going to make a game. We know that we know how the mouse works. We're going to make a game that takes advantage of the fact that you can click on things directly and you don't have to have all these keyboard shortcuts and so on. So like you get to your inventory by double clicking your character um, and that pops up their backpack. It does this whole like seamless integration of the game world in the interface thing that was a huge trend in the 2000s with stuff like Eco and eventually Assassin's Creed, which like created an entire backstory for why you have an interface. Uh, but or, Ultimate 7 was like way ahead of its time in terms of just trying to be the game itself is the game. And it did it very, it was attractive. It was easy to play, which I don't think any other Ultima can say that anymore. Um, it's still relatively easy to play. The mouse uh, is just like left click is interact and right click is move. And that holds true across the entire game. Um, so yeah, it's uh, uh, kind of a stunning aesthetic achievement in a way that also matches the game itself. Uh, it's not, it, you know, it's about the game world. And as you said, it's one of the big open world games. And of course, Ultima itself, uh, has did so much for RPGs as we know them. Uh, each game trying to push the form ahead in some way. It was an absolute giant of the 1980s, especially a game like Ultima 4, Runes of Virtue, which was just truly remarkable for something that was developed in the in the mid 80s in the ways that it handled all the virtues and everything. Uh, so many. Uh, Japanese RPGs owe uh, a lot of credit to the original Ultima because it helped inspire Dragon Quest, which, of course, ultimately became its own thing. But at the same time, uh, so many Western RPGs as well have deep roots in the open-endedness of the way that you interacted with Ultima. Like, the secret sauce of Ultima was that it was kind of driving... It was pulling you into its world. It was making you feel like you were part of the Ultima ultimate world and that you could change things and interact with it in so many interesting ways and there's a reason that it's kind of a legendary name in the the gaming world and it's a shame that it's dead (laughs) (laughs) uh well after the mobile game i'm not sure that's such a shame but uh i I, well uh, i mean the mobile game is just like shambling zombie like kill it (laughs) one of the ways that i talk about rpgs a lot is um there's this sort of divide between pre-1995 and post-1996, where uh, Western RPGs specifically kind of collapsed and then were eventually reborn with like Fallout and Baldur's Gate and so on. Um, and Ultima was one of the dominant games of the era before that, but it was a really different way. Like The games before the 95 collapse tended to be party-based where you created your whole party. They tended to be uh, very combat-oriented. They were the R-O-L-L role-playing games instead of the R-O-L-E role-playing games. Um, They tended to be, like, you know, focused on these mechanics, roll your party, just dive in, not too much narrative. Uh, You're there to kill spiders, and goddammit, you're going to kill spiders. And then the games after that, you create a single character, they're based very much on narrative. They're based very much on morality. They're based very much around like kind of openness instead of just dungeon crawls. Um, and that's all stuff that Ultima was trying to do before, you know, the Biowares and the Black Isles and uh, all those came along. And Ultima 7 was in many ways a sort of pinnacle of this because this isn't that much of an RPG. Um, there are stats. There is combat. 
they're very under the hood. Most of what you're doing is wandering around the world and talking to people. And that's been a part of Ultima beforehand, but even the games before that all had this, you know, slow-paced, turn-based combat. In Ultima 7, you just kind of see some enemies and everyone runs after it and the music changes and hopefully you win and nobody dies. Um, there is not a whole lot that you can do in the combat. It's fast. It's there because it's a violent world, but it's not there because this is a game to play in a combat fashion. And in that respect, um, I sort of compare it to The Witcher 3 in some ways. That definitely has better combat, but it's not a very good role-playing game. It's just a fantastic game, and it's a world you want to be in. What defines, so, what, what to you is a very good role-playing game? I mean, in terms of the mechanics, the progression system, and so on. Like, okay. when you level up, are you making these choices that are super interesting that will define how you're playing the game? Um, so to you, a really good role-playing game is very focused on mechanics. I, w- I would still say Ultima 7 is a fantastic role-playing game, and The Witcher 3 is a fantastic role-playing game. Um, just that the sort of RPG mechanical aspect is one of the weakest part of both of those. Uh, they're about throwing you into a world and making that world as appealing as possible and having you interact with the world. Um, in The Witcher 3, it's more of a, a plot-style interaction. In Ultima 7, there is the plot, but there's also just interacting with all the objects. These are the Ultimas where you're, you're famously able to bake bread if you want to just sit around and take two hours and bake a whole bunch of bread and uh, sell it for 100 gold and live your life that way. You can do that. They're you know, famously, also the ones where all the NPCs have day-night cycles. Um, if you go into a shop after 5 p.m., you can't do anything. The shop's probably even locked up. And, you know, Skyrim and things like that eventually start doing that, but there's like a 15-year gap where Ultima's the only game that does this. And the NPCs just go home. You can follow them home and talk to them, and sometimes they'll kick you out of their bedroom. I'm not sure if that was Ultima 7, but yeah. Uh, they do notice that you're talking to them in the wrong place. So let's talk a little bit about the the history of the Ultimate Seven's development. Um, it was intended to be a, a trilogy. It was planned out uh, from that direction. And I think it's fair to say that while 8 and 9 ultimately did come out, it ended up being very different probably than what Richard Gary had envisioned. Yeah. Um, so the, the Ultima series generally worked in trilogies. The first three games uh you're just sort of doing random role-playing game stuff where you kill villains and then for ultima 4 richard garriott and origin decided that hey we want to have more of a thematic thing here because like he found out that in order to succeed in ultima 2 one of the things that people would do is go to a shop buy everything in the shop and then kill the shopkeeper and take all the gold back um so with the next three he decided to make games about morality um and so ultima 4 uh is like the the peak of this idea where you are trying to become a hero by doing good things in the world. It's not there is a villain, you kill him. It is you have to go and do the eight virtues. Uh, you have to live a humble life, a valorous life, a compassionate life, and so on. And, you know, some of that was arbitrary and goofy, but it was, you know, no other RPG was doing anything like that uh, in the video game realm. Uh, and then the other two games in that trilogy, five and six, kind of continued that trend. Five is one that I'm not super duper familiar with, so I cannot speak to it too much. But it sort of took the idea of the virtues being corrupted, and you you did your quest based on that. And then six, uh, there was an invasion of the gargoyles, who were enemies in previous games, and 
enemies at the start of Ultima 6, and then over the course of playing that game, you realize that they actually have legitimate grievances, their invasion <laughs> is justified, and the final act of that game is making peace with them and joining your ethical system and their ethical system. Uh, so, you know, that that trilogy goes with the you are the hero and you become the avatar who is, you know, embodies the virtues that Richard Garriott decided to come up with, which are pretty good virtues. He didn't do a bad job with that. I do um, believe so then, that these flesh-eating gargoyles have a point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gotta hear both sides. Uh, <laughs> so then Ultima 7 is the start of a new trilogy, and there's this sort of idea for the for this that there is a seductive, ethically seductive, but overall evil character called the Guardian, who is putting you into a uh, sort of darker Ultima. The Ultima 7 takes place like 200 years after Ultima 6, and something is like slowly sort of rotting in the game world, uh, and you're kind of trying to figure out what's happening. The uh, Guardian seems to be involved in a creepy new religion that has one of the best uh, pieces of game music I ever, ever heard, the Fellowship theme uh, attached to it. Um, that's another great thing about this game. Uh, so there's there's a sort of level of darkness to it and idea that uh, a mist- the Guardian is this mysterious force that is trying to impose itself on the game world of Britannia, and you have to kind of solve this mystery. And in Ultima 7 and its uh, pseudo-sequel Serpent Isle, like, you sort of uncover what's happening, and then in Ultima 8, it just kind of falls off the rails. You go to the Guardian's home planet, everything is weird and bad and you're not being heroic anymore and then i've never even played ultima 9 i've heard it's better than 8 but like i i just cannot get motivated to try to do that and uh yeah so that that trilogy that through the 80s had been so the idea of the ultima trilogies had been so strong just utterly falls apart here and what a bummer another thing with the the whole 1995-96 collapse of RPGs is like all the classic game series like the Ultimas and Wizardries and Might and Magics and so on either stopped entirely or they started taking much, much longer to create. So most every Ultima comes out a year or two after the last one. Um, Ultima 6 was in 90, Ultima 7 was in 92, Ultima 7.5 is 93, and Ultima 8 is in 94, and then Ultima 9 is like 99. So the games start taking much, much longer to create. Uh, and, you know, any sort of um, momentum that they had were trying to carry over is gone in, in that respect. So looking at looking at Ultima 7 itself, um, it has a really... You were talking about the aesthetics and how it was a beautiful game. It does have a really striking opening where it's mm-hmm. kind of a... Your, t- your, your screen is being taken control of... <laughs> Uh, very outer limits in that uh the guardian's big old red head pops out and he starts uh basically gloating at you about how he's going to take over the universe no that britannia has entered a new age of enlightenment <laughs> yes and i don't have the whole thing memorized but that first line really sticks in your head <laughs> and then he uh and then it pulls back and you see ultima 7 on the tv uh, on the computer screen in the game and your character's like hitting it <laughs> It's very meta. Yeah. Well, that was that was sort of a general thing that Garriott kept trying to do was 
you were you playing Ultima and then getting sucked into the Ultima idea. And, you know, the Ultima is where the the idea of the avatar as your, the default term for your player character comes from, right? He, but he wanted that avatar to specifically be you, the person making the choices that you as a person would make. Not really how I deal with RPGs, but he made some good RPGs with it, so I'm not going to complain too much. Um, but I think the, one of the ideas in that Ultima 7 opening was that uh, it's got the the like kind of idyllic nature scene with a butterfly flapping its wings, and it's like, here's another you know fairly conventional fantasy role-playing game, um, and then the Guardian shows up and everything gets a lot darker. You know, it is the 90s, a lot of people are trying to do that, but I think that this one did a really good job of not just being like violent, grim, dark, uh, terrible X-Men style, but actually creating a world where there was genuine darkness. The sequels, or semi-sequel Serpent Isle did some... Uh, uh, plot decisions that were perhaps a little excessively violent. I don't know if you're concluding that in your uh, Ultima 7. So after the Guardian pops into your TV screen and addresses you, you head over to uh, the world of Britannia and uh, about 200 years have passed or so. Uh, there's a new religion and it's kind of uh, Narnia-esque in that regard. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of that. Uh, also, in all the other previous Ultimas, you go through a blue moon gate to get to Britannia, but this one's a red moon gate. Uh, yeah, so that's all creepy. And uh, the first thing you do is run into a corpse that has been dismembered. and uh, Very violently. The, this is a very yes. violent thing in 1992. Yes, yeah, so, you know, Ultima has been this kind of... It hasn't been this dark fantasy. It hasn't had the technology to show like this really gruesome violence, and it looks cartoonish to us now of course but you know there's blood all over the the screen there's these body parts scattered it's uh it, it was pretty notable at the time and yeah that's a big big change from um walking in in the previous ultimas where everything's kind of nice but maybe something's a little bit wrong yeah i mean one of the characters is totally spiked against the wall yeah yeah it's pretty it's pretty gruesome but, uh, I mean, from this point in, the, the game, you're kind of turned loose into the game world, am I right? Uh, you have to solve the mystery, which, you know, functions as kind of a tutorial um, and introduces you to some of the characters in the Fellowship who are a major new thing. But once you solve the mystery, you are sent out into the world. You're given a quest, and I don't remember the details of exactly when, like, the full amount of the quest is given to you that seems like it has a time limit they're like oh the planets are going to be in conjunction and you get like a device that you can look at to see how close the planets are going to be to that uh but it's it's totally arbitrary you can go do whatever you want and when you get to that point in the plot then it will say the planets are in conjunction so yeah it's it it's sort of deceptive in that way um yeah another fun thing about ultima 7 uh a good little piece of trivia is that like many old, old uh, open worlds, not Ultima worlds, but we could call them that, but like many open world games that came out, it was a total buggy mess at launch. Surprise, surprise. One of, one of the things that it had was a feature. This was actually intended to be in the game where keys would be deleted from your inventory after a day. The idea was you would get a key go use it on a door, you would never need that key again. But they would be deleted no matter what. Uh, 
So, you know, people would get a key, they would go rest, and all of a sudden they can't finish the gate. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't know. It might have been lockpickable. I don't know if they were these were game-baking bugs or just really, really annoying. But yeah, it was uh, uh, kind of famous for being a total buggy mess. So I, I probably it's probably good that I played the complete edition that had been patched later. Yeah, Ultimate 9 was, Ultimate 9 was pretty buggy as well. But yeah, you get you get tossed out into the game world, um, and it this is like a fully open world, more open than Skyrim in some ways. You don't get loading screens when you go into buildings or towns. Everything is just sort of part of the world. If you wanted to, you could you know try to find a dragon and lure it into a town so all the guards would attack it. Um, and there were all sorts of nooks and crannies to explore. I've mentioned that it's not really a dungeon crawler. And the combat is not that good, but if you wanted to go into dungeons and try to do a whole bunch of uh, dungeon crawling and get your characters all leveled up and kill dragons, like, that's available to you. All the dungeons from the previous Ultimas that were more dungeon crawly are still there. There's one cave that is very near to the starting town that has a dragon in it, and there's a reason to go into it, and then there's a reason to run like hell from the dragon, and I don't remember exactly what that was, but I have a very specific memory of, like, reading a guide that said, go do this, but don't go near the goddamn dragon. But I can't remember what it is. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it is an open world with a whole bunch of systemic interactions that you can mess around with and have fun with. You attack a guard, the entire guard, you know, the entire town will start attacking you. Um, I know of uh, Ultima. I don't remember if it's Ultima six or seven that I would do this in, but it was a, a possibility in both where you could go get a cannon on top of the ramparts around a town and just start firing it at people, and everyone would attack you. But you have a goddamn cannon, so they can't really do anything. Uh, all all those sorts of things, in addition to the baking bread and the forging swords and so on. I remember also guides I read said, okay, the first thing you should do is go find the magic carpet, which is not too far from the, the starting cities. It's in the sort of the center of the map where you begin, but the plot will take you there like three quarters of the way into the game. But if you just walk there, you can get a magic carpet that you can fly anywhere in the game world um, right from the start. So yeah, it, it's extremely open and that doesn't stop you from doing the plot or have you skip anything it just makes it a lot easier to get around yeah this was very much the ethos of pc rpgs back in the mid 90s or so we were talking about fallout in the last episode and how you could basically get to the necropolis almost immediately if you really wanted to like there wasn't yeah. a lot stopping you uh total openness was a thing in a in an era in which developers weren't hamstrung by the need to create these extremely detailed and crazy assets and voice acting and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I remember Fallout 2, you could start and immediately walk across the mountains to San Francisco where the Brotherhood of Steel was and say, uh, hey, I want to join you and you, you get power armor at level 2. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there, there, there were all these options and like some of it, I'm not sure if it was so much a design ethos as it was just they were making the game in a way that they didn't realize could be broken that way. Um, Ultima 6, the entire middle of the game is a quest for the pirate map, where you're supposed to find these nine pieces of a map that will get you to the gargoyle lands in order to learn their language and so on. It was really, really poorly designed and put together. 
uh, it, like you basically had to accidentally come across two or three of the pieces in this giant open world. I mean, it's not giant by our standards, but uh, it's not a thing that you would regularly be able to do unless you were like trying to look at every coordinate on the map. Um, but there were ways that you could just teleport to the Gargoyle Lands and get taught the language anyway and bypass this entire section of the game. Um, Ultima 7 is not quite like that, although the the travel with the magic carpet does help a lot. But uh, yeah, there's there's just a lot of things where if you could bypass it, more power to you. Yeah, so much of this game seems built around messing around and having fun in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, doing things like, oh, uh, can I do that? Can I kill this person? Can I? What happens if I cast this spell? Oh, everybody died. Yeah. I, another one that I don't remember if it was Ultima 6 or Ultima 7, but I'm wandering around the world and I walk into this house kind of through the back door and I see just this pile of corpses. And so I walk through the door from the from like the um, back room into the, the main room and I see a guy and I'm like, you're killing people. And I just start attacking and I kill him, and then all the guards come and arrest me. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? I don't know what happened. And then later when I come back again after reloading my game or whatever, and walk through the front door, I discover that it's the morgue. Um, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> in um in the expansion, you get a sword. Uh, yes. A, a sword that can basically kill anybody and it's suck out their the soul. the most powerful sword of the game, yeah. And you, could, you can have like interactions where you talk to it and tell it to... Uh, kill things and and you can kill the hell out of uh lord british i'm not sure i ever actually tried that but that would make sense it is a very powerful sword yeah uh though if you do so you can't win the game yeah that that tends to happen with these um and that's something that uh, i remember the developers of fallout new vegas said we want you to have the ability to kill everyone in the game and it still works so that that they have that robot that uh will respawn if you destroy it and through that robot you can finish the game um so yeah, that design ethos managed to carry on into some games, uh, but not a too many because it's yeah. friggin' hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> it's easier just um, to make people invincible. Yeah, give them that plot armor. Um, the other thing I remember about the expansion—God, I can't remember the name of it now—but when you're when you're making the sword, you're actually making the sword. So you're using all of those blacksmith things, you're you know heating up the iron or the special magical thing and you're pouring it into the the mold and you're dumping the water on it and you're hammering it into shape and you're using your bellows and like all of these things, the things you double click on. So it's a, it's a really good way to get you invested in the magic sword beyond like giving a blacksmith 200 gold in order to make the thing you want. Um, and that, that seemed to me to be sort of the pinnacle of the Ultima design philosophy was this is your sword that you make and you are going to goddamn make it. Because you also do a quest to like get the demon that you put in the sword. So there's like the whole high fantasy, wander through the dungeon, explore stuff, and then there's the like nitty gritty busy work that makes you feel like the world is real. And then other things that were kind of interesting, uh, your party members would react to the way that you behaved, which was uh, something that would pop up into later games, but right. perhaps in a more limited set fashion in some ways, where you if you are bad and committing evil there you could get to a point where your party members would just be like eh, screw you i'm leaving yeah i'm not sure i ever got to that point i'm in ultima 7.5 the serpent isle they uh it's built more specifically around you having the three set party members yolo dupre and uh shamino 
and so they will react. I mean, it's not quite like a Bioware game where they're talking to you about every damn thing you do, but there are consistent reactions from each party member. You go and flirt with a barmaid, and Yolo will be like, if, if I were 10 years younger or whatever. And that that uh, that sort of thing is, is definitely something that later games took from Ultima and no other games were doing at the time in any way near what Ultima was doing with it. Another thing about Ultima 7 was... Uh from what I've been able to kind of ascertain, uh, dialogue trees weren't that much of a thing before Ultima 7 came along. Sort of. Um, so starting with Ultima 4, this is another thing along with the whole morality idea. You would use your keyboard to type in things. And every, every conversation you begin with somebody, you could ask them name, job, health. And you would type them in, and like in Ultima Six, the key words that they would you would be able to ask them about further would show up in red, so you would know how to do them. In Ultima Four and Five, you sort of had to guess as to what they were. So you know, if someone is like, "Oh, I am the blacksmith for the town of uh, Minoc," uh, then you could type in Minoc, and they would tell you about the town. In Ultima Seven, because they went to the full mouse-driven thing, not entirely full. You, there were still hotkeys that you could use. But if you wanted to play it entirely with the mouse, you could. They had it so that you could start every conversation with name and job, but those were things you would click on. And then the keywords that they would talk about would just show up there. Um, So yeah, you start getting these very specific dialogue trees. Now, they're not that functionally different from the keywords of the previous few Ultima games, but how you clicked on them, how embedded they were, how authored they were was something that was added by Ultima 7 and became a kind of default, although they eventually would become more uh, full lines of dialogue where instead of just uh, key words that you would click on. But either way, it's uh, it, it was somewhat of a pioneer in that respect. Any other things that really stand out to you about Ultima 7 really made it special in your mind? As I, as I mentioned, like in regards to comparing it to The Witcher, where the RPG aspect wasn't that huge, it was almost an adventure game. Like, if you were doing the main plot, the things that you were doing were more closely aligned with solving puzzles than killing monsters. Um, and this is, there, there is a puzzle at some point in the middle of the game where, like, you go to uh, a wizard's warehouse, and I think the wizard is dead, but you have to get something from his warehouse. I don't remember exactly what it is. And it's on the top floor of the warehouse, but there are no stairs or ladders. And what you have to do is move the crates around in a way that your characters can walk up them and just take it. And the moving the crates around is a little finicky, but it is the sort of thing that you would do in an adventure or an action-adventure game. There are a few like uh, sort of gear tests or level tests, especially at the end of the game where you have to fight off Elizabeth and Abraham when you finally find them. Uh, But in general, the sorts of challenge that if you're just doing the game as a narrative, you're doing are totally different from most other RPGs. They are just talking to people and solving puzzles and not fighting monsters and not doing skill checks, uh, which is... You know, I think it's a it's a major strength of the game, and possibly a reason that it still is pretty eminently playable despite being over twenty five years old at this point. God, I'm old. Um, so, when you look back on the legacy of Ultima Seven, like, what do you think it really meant for RPGs? In holding to the that my theory about you know the the collapse in the dark ages of RPGs in the mid nineties, Ultima Seven was really the first game of the era that we're in now, the post-96 the post era, the Fallout era. Uh, 
it was the game that really wanted you to... Oh, here's another great thing about it. Uh, it was a game that really wanted you to engage with it as a story that existed kind of beyond its medium. The funny thing that they did here was when after you beat the game, it would roll the credits, it would play its music, it would say all the people's names and so on. And then they had a little note in there that was like, soundtrack available from Origin Systems. They just did that because they thought it was cute because they were doing such cinematic um, style credits after a game that was had various cinematic style moments and so on. And then people called and wanted the soundtrack. <laughs> uh, they, you know, helped create this market for getting the RPG soundtracks out there by making a joke about how cinematic their game looked. And this came out at roughly the same time as Final Fantasy VI, which also was a huge pioneer in, like, pushing a sort of cinematic language onto the idea of the RPG. Origins, um, like, what do, what do you think we are? Square Enix? Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, they're also doing Wing Commander at this time, of which is, you know, the uh, the trying to be the interactive movie before that became a bad word. Um, yeah, it's, it was kind of a bad word around this time. <laughs> well, in 92, they, the, the uh, Wing Commander interactive movie was still, like, animated and, uh, it was not until True. the FMV came a, a year or two later that it started getting. I think really it was ninety two that uh, Return to Zork came out. Or was that ninety four? Maybe it was I, a couple I, of years I, later I that remember. we started getting the CD based, uh, CD yeah. ROM based interactive full motion video movies. Yeah, um, and that you know the way I played it, the the Ultima Seven collection came on the CD ROM, and the original version came on like thirty discs. I don't know if it was thirty, but it was a lot of discs. Yeah. So yeah, it it sort of pioneers all these things of you know companion interactions, um, narrative, putting the narrative at the center of your progression instead of a progression system, uh, having your characters' choices be kind of how they're done. Although that's more related to the previous Ultimas, but the sort of things that eventually we're going to look at Fallout and Bioware games and be like, oh, these are blowing me away. Ultima is already sort of down this path, and Ultima 7 is the peak of a lot of the really good things and that. And then you have the whole open world aspect where Ultima 6 and 7 both have this like seamless open world that has basically not been matched since. Like they, All these other games have loading screens. Ultima 6 and 7 didn't. Yes, it's kind of going the other way. the The uh, Bethesda direction is also influenced pretty heavily by Ultima. Yeah, it seems to me that so many RPGs today owe a gigantic debt to the way that Ultima Seven uh, did things, and some of them do know it. Uh, Divinity Original Sin begins with you like washing up outside of a uh, a town, and then you go in, and the first thing they have you do is try to solve a murder that is very similar to Ultima Seven's initial murder. Um, but a lot of them, I'm not sure they they recognize it quite so quite so much. I wrote back when I was doing my joystick RPG column with you, um, well, alongside you, whatever. Uh, I wrote a piece that was like every game is Ultima, and you know all the open world stuff. There's a whole bunch of technical things that the series did, and the narrative things that the series did that, like, you can trace pretty much any game back to Ultima at some level from any genre, and that's uh, something that occasionally gets lost because the series has largely been out of the discourse since the heyday of Ultima Online. Yeah, that's why I think uh, Ultima Seven has been 
I, I think that among RPG fans, classic RPG fans, Ultima 7 is touted as one of the greatest games ever made, but it's otherwise been largely forgotten, which is really too bad. I, I'm curious to know where it would fall on, say, Polygon's uh, 100. What did, they do? did they do like 500 great games or 100 great games, something like that? They did. Um, did they even make their top 50? I I think it might have. Okay. Um let me see. I don't I don't really think that's the fault of if it didn't, I don't really think that's the fault of Ultima 7 itself. I think it's the fault of EA in their complete inability to be able to shepherd what should be a absolute powerhouse uh RPG franchise today. It should be The Witcher today. If and, if we're being honest. And yeah, I, instead EA, I mean <laughs> In, all, even back in the late 90s they're chasing the money and Ultima Online basically murdered Ultima and that was that <laughs> well I mean they also pissed off a lot of the developers over the course of creating this in Ultima 8 which uh, I'm not, I don't know much of the background story but the just the way that Ultima 8 was geared towards being an action adventure style thing and the way that maybe they were trying to get the console crowd uh, seems yeah. Well, that uh, that and also, I mean, with Ultima Online, the Richard Gary and all them did a, a look back on it at GDC last year, and they were pretty explicit in saying, "Yeah, EA didn't know what the heck we were doing. We had no money." And then all of a yeah. sudden, they discovered that Ultima Online made money, and then they only wanted us to be Ultima Online. <laughs> yeah. Uh, although you know, it's hard to say that the series was going to be great after Ultima Eight, which was three years more. Three years earlier than uh, Ultima Online, it's true. Uh, so I think the, the writing was on the wall, and there were even fans who disliked Ultima Seven because but it was Ultima such Ten would have been an MMORPG if it had ever come out. There was also rumors that Obsidian was being hired to maybe make Ultima Ten, but they decided to make it Alpha Protocol instead. And I don't think Obsidian would have done that. But you know, the EA has probably wondered about an Ultima Ten many, many times. Yeah. So I, I, I searched my Twitter handle Ultima and Polygon. And the first thing that comes up is me cussing out Polygon for putting Ultima seven at number 277. Oh my God. And then shadow hearts covenant four slots above that. I have no <laughs> huge problem with shadow hearts, but you know, yikes. Yeah. I don't want to slag Polygon too hard for that, but I, I, I don't necessarily think that, this is like me calling out Polygon. I think it's just speaking to the fact yeah. that it has been allowed to fall out of the discourse in a way that it shouldn't have. Yeah, and a lot of these lists, I remember you and I talked about uh, the the top RPG lists that uh, there were like two of them that came out simultaneously like a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And like there were like three games from before 1994 on a top 100 RPGs list or something obscene like that. And like, yeah, it's, it's hard to get into these. Like I say, this game is accessible and relative to most other games of the era on PC, it is accessible, but it's still not going to immediately be like, Oh, this is just like playing mass effect. Uh, this is, uh, there's a little bit of a learning curve here and um, actually getting, to understand like the rhythm of the game is a whole nother thing on top of that. So um, yeah, it, it can be difficult and I do sympathize with it to some extent, but uh, there are a lot of like big game history lists that just kind of ignore anything that didn't come on a CD. Yeah. Uh, 
a lot of this, I, I've said this before, but this series is partly influenced by the fact that Game Informer, bless their hearts, put Skyrim at the top of uh, yeah. their best RPG list, which uh, a lot of the staff apparently weren't a big fan of that, but that's another story. <laughs> I mean, Skyrim is another game that is somewhat comparable in that it's not a great RPG, but it is a great experience. Uh, in the way that uh, it's a very memorable sure. experience, and yes. it hit the mainstream in a way that a lot of games just weren't able to, but that didn't necessarily make it better than other games. Yeah, like yeah, Morrowind. I mean, I'm a Daggerfall fan, you know that. Of course, you are. Well, uh, this game came out two years before Elder Scrolls Arena. I want to point out. Uh huh. Um, and uh, initial Elder Scrolls games, Daggerfall and Arena, were. Uh, divided between like having a, a a map that you would travel to and then you know an infinite number of procedurally generated dungeons as opposed to the the embedded uh, open worlds that we see now they still sort of felt the same it was just that this was a full embedded world uh, you know a decade before Morrowind sure was but Ultima 7, it's number 6 on our top 25 RPG countdown, an RPG that has perhaps unjustly been forgotten. And as I wrote at E3 last year, um, having IPs that are established and known and people are familiar with are worth their weight in gold. And the CEA squander them so badly. Uh, it's not just unfortunate, a loss of real gaming history. It's just freaking bad business sense because i mean i like i said ultima should be right up there with fallout and everything else and it is allowed to just to die and that's a shame so on that note that's number six on our top 25 rpg list uh thanks to rowan for coming on the show to talk about it and rowan where can we find you I am the PC guest post editor at GameSpeech, and I am also on the Three Moves Ahead podcast very regularly. And where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm at Rowan Kaiser, but don't find me on Twitter. I talk a lot. All right, and let's continue on to the mailbag. All right, Nadia, as always, we are going to read the comments and mail from people who listened to last week's podcast. Last week, we talked about Fallout as being our on our top 25 RPG list. I believe it was number seven. And Mullah Ram says, so I'm probably one of the original flavor Fallout fans you mentioned, the one that ones that have been really disappointed with Bethesda's influence in the series. I guess they're not terrible games in themselves, but they, what they share with Fallout 1 mostly amounts to window dressing. I was prepared to rage if you include Fallout 3 on the list, but you made the right choice. <laughs> Go you. Yeah, we have Fallout New Vegas. Uh, Dog Meat doesn't have to die, by the way. It's possible to keep him alive at the end with a little micromanagement, but it's pretty clear that he's not meant to survive. You can't tell him to retreat. He'll never abandon you, and that loyalty Aww. is what kills him. You can at least tell oh. the other companions to go away, but the only way Dogmeat definitely, well, probably survives is if you never meet him at all. No. I really liked that about him. It's bittersweet. And yes, that bittersweet ending, as far as I'm concerned, it's one of the greatest endings in gaming. Which I guess I just guaranteed that you will never play Fallout. <laughs> <laughs> I guess because of the, the 
poor dog meat. Yep. Yeah. Can't handle no. pets dying. No, I've, uh, I, I understand the cycle of life and all that, but yeah, that just, that just breaks my heart. Just the fact that he doesn't abandon you because he can't, he won't. Yeah. It's a puppy. Pups Aww. don't abandon you. Pups are loyal for life, even uh, oh. into the end. Unless the other person has some, like, sausages on them, then forget it, you're dead. <laughs> uh, Drachmalia says, that's why this list has been great. I genuinely have no idea what's going to be on it. I still need to play Fallout 1 and 2, but this is an excellent choice just for the impact it's had on RPGs. Uh, not important says, thought for sure Fallout 2 would make the list. Huh? Well, nothing's wrong with the original. I look forward to listening. Yeah, Fallout 2 is interesting. Um, when I was talking to Chris Avalone, he was like, oh, yeah, when we put out Fallout 2... A lot of people were mad and said that we had ruined it. That we had ruined Fallout. <laughs> Same as it ever was. Said that it was too unfinished. Uh, and it was too ambitious for its own good. Much like a lot of Obsidian games, uh, ultimately. Because, mm. I mean, it was made by Black Isle. And ultimately, Obsidian, um, uh, who eventually became Obsidian. <laughs> so, uh, Rider Kicker says, I can understand why Kat still has her iPhone 6. After all, she knows to spend the money on the better things, like anime. Don't tell them I don't <laughs> spend money on anime. <laughs> I was going to say, what, what damn anime are you watching? I don't know. Eighth uh, MS team is on Hulu. No, that's fair enough. By the way, guys, if you ever have, if you ever need a, an anime recommendation, Mike knows like everything yeah. about anime. He's like, he's like, you know, one of those like uh, mechanical fortune tellers you, you feed all your information into and they come out with a fortune for you. That's Mike, and, except with anime. And then you wake up the next morning and you're big for no reason. And you're big. My husband's never seen that movie. I got I got to force him to watch it. It's a great movie. It is good. Yeah, no, the de- dirty secret is that I probably watched the least anime of anybody on the staff. <laughs> I don't watch a whole lot myself. I'm actually just uh, starting to watch Cells at Work, which is very cute. I, I like kind of those like informative animes. Yeah, uh, Mike is really invested in anime. Like I would say he's definitely the most invested out of anybody in anime on the staff, and he has been working on he's been working at Otakon and been one of the major people behind it for a long time. Yeah, he, he is. He goes back every year, uh takes time off to go work at Otakon, uh, secret shepherds people around, it's kind of crazy. Uh Katie is really into Otakon or is really into anime. Um and Matt's really into anime and here I Heron's really into anime. <laughs> and here I am sitting here being like, "Well, I like watching anime from the 90s in Gundam." <laughs> the last anime well, you know, I watched was Yamato twenty one ninety nine. That's not a, see you make good choices though. Those are good. That's good anime. Actually, that's not true. The last anime I watched was Gundam Thunderbolt. I don't know if that's good anime or not. Yeah, it's solid. It's a kind of jazzy rendition of the original series. Uh, Austin Walker really likes it. Oh, cool. Yeah, and Gundam Thunderbolt is notable for having the worst combination of pilot and commander in like Gundam history. They're just so bad. Like in that they just have no chemistry? No, no, they're incompetent. They are not very good at their <laughs> jobs. <laughs> well, you don't if you don't want to be bad at your job if you're piloting a like a 30-story robot. Yeah, you don't want to be I mean, you got an you basically got an OP weapon, right? I mean, its stats are through through the roof. Uh enemies can't even put a can't even hurt you, really, and you still lose. You suck. Yeah. Wow, that is pretty bad. You're you're, you're, you're bad. You're bad. So you're bad at your job. But it's still an entertaining watch. And just goes to show how much uh, Gundam has swung to the point where Xeon is the good guys and the Federation are the bad guys now. Oh, is that where we are now? Yeah, that's basically where we are. Like, it kind of sort of hues to the old, oh, yeah, Xeon, they're the bad guys or whatever. But aren't they cool? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, Japan. Uh, there's a whole lot of reasons. Anyway, uh, yeah, go watch 8th MS Team on Hulu is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> done and done. Oh, wait, we don't think we have Hulu in Canada. Sorry. Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, other wherever other podcasts are sold. Uh, make sure to leave us a review if you enjoy it. Tell your friends about it. Subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find a link to a sign up link to the sign up on the homepage. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford, and all of our social channels are U.S. GamerNet. We'll be back next week, as usual, to talk about more RPGs. Continue the top 25 RPG countdown. I expect that it'll be time for a little anthem review. So mm. stay tuned for that. In the meantime, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening, and also to Rowan as well. Thanks for coming on the show. And until next time, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.